I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to this edition of World Weekly from the Financial Times. I'm Gideon Rachman. Today we're looking at South Africa, which faces a critical year in politics that could define the difference between state failure and economic and political regeneration. Joining me on the line from Johannesburg is our correspondent there, Joseph Cottrell, and here in the studio, Africa editor David Pilling. Joe, first of all, you've written recently that this is the most important year for the African National Congress, which has governed South Africa since the end of apartheid, since the mid-1990s. Why is that? Yes, I mean, you could say this isn't just the most important year for the ANC since 1994, when it took power, but also uh, in its history. It's 105 years old, the oldest liberation movement in Africa. But the reason why this year is so critical is because even though the ANC has been through successions, both in the democratic area and obviously apartheid ended, none has been as divisive as this one is shaping up to be. And that is primarily because of the character of the incumbent and his legacy, President Jacob Zuma. He cannot run again to be ANC president. He's, well, he could, but he can't really. He is coming to the end of his time as state president in 2019. So really, this year is a crunch point for the entire ANC to kind of reflect on a legacy of scandal, corruption, allegations, a slowing economy, and think, do we want to continue with this into the 2019 election, or do we have time to reverse course? And that has caused a great deal of factionism to kind of break out in a quite an unprecedented way for this kind of very old, venerable movement, and in a way which is really going to distract quite a lot of policy making in the country this year as well. So who are the main candidates to succeed President Zuma, and, and what broadly do they represent? Two front runners at this point, and I had to caveat all of this by saying the ANC deems it officially to be, quote, unquote, bad revolutionary taste for any leadership hopeful to actually campaign openly until the ANC top brass say it's it's okay to do that. You know, that's in keeping with its kind of history as a revolutionary movement. Uh, but that said, kind of poking through the curtain, firstly, Zuma's own deputy president, Cyril Ramaphosa, and making it a bit awkward, Zuma's ex-wife, or one of his ex-wives, Okazana Flamini Zuma, who has just recently passed the torch as chair of the African Union Commission. So she's been kind of detached from South African and ANC politics for a number of years. But in terms of, you know, what do these two represent? As I mentioned, the choice before the ANC is continue on the course Mr. Zuma has set for them into the 2019 or attempt a really drastic course change. Mr. Ramaphosa even though he's not publicly or directly kind of laid out his position, is by and large held to represent the course change 
he, he retorts a kind of bankers and just affected ANC people and investors outside South Africa. They really see Cyril, as he's widely known, to be the one who will kind of stand up to this culture of corruption and patronage, which is bubbled up through the ANC in the Zuma years. So he'll kind of clean up things. He'll put South Africa back on the map as an investment destination. He'll carry out the reforms, which are needed to solve firstly the kind of quite pitiful growth rate of 1% and the kind of scary unemployment rate of over 25%. So people are really kind of projecting this vision of reform onto Mr. Ramaphosa. Now, we'll kind of we can discuss whether he kind of merits that, but to turn very quickly to Echo Zazana, as she's known, she is kind of much more of a cipher. Again, she hasn't really kind of publicly laid out her position either, but simply by virtue of having a family connection to Mr. Zuma, it's widely assumed she has his support, she has the support of you know the factions which he has supported and patronized within the ANC. And in return for that support, she will be expected to allow the politicians which within the ANC, which have relied on patronage, on kind of access to state resources for private ends and so on, that will kind of continue. So, David, if I can bring you in here, Joe portrays a fairly stark choice between the man who business wants, Ramaphosa, who's meant to be the reformer, and between continuity and slow rot, essentially, under the alternative candidate, the ex-Mrs. Zuma. Do you, as somebody who comes in and out of the country, see it in quite those terms? Well, I don't think we necessarily need to uh, posit this around personalities. I mean, it, it, it is true that those two personalities may represent a sort of a fork in the road for the ANC. But I think the question is more sort of uh, fundamental than that, in a sense. This, remember, was a party with tremendous moral authority, not only in South Africa, but around Africa, and indeed around the whole world. And yet it's a liberation movement that, particularly under Mr. Zuma, seems to have gone the way of other African liberation movements, more interested in enriching itself and less interested in putting in place policies to help the black majority in whose name it has been running the country. And you could see that the black majority is beginning to lose patience in the municipal elections, which I covered in July and August last year. The ANC got a really bloody nose it only got 55% of the vote the first time that it fell below 60% since 1994. And other parties, for example, the Democratic Alliance now at 27% and now running four of the biggest cities in South Africa. So in a sense, you've got an existential crisis for the ANC. Does it continue along this path, in which case it may have to either do a kind of a Zimbabwe and just consolidate its power by fair means or foul, or it might be kicked out um, by an electorate, assuming that the institutions stay in place enough for that to happen? Or does it reform from within and prove that a one-party state? I mean, that South Africa is certainly a functioning democracy, as we've seen, but by virtue of the ANC's, you know, um, great prestige, it, it, it's effectively been a one-party state. Can it reform from within? And I think that's really what's at stake on the political front. Mm. The, then on the side, there's a whole other economic question which we can go into. Yeah, we should go into that in a second. But just on the political front, I mean, it strikes me, although the fact that there's so much bad publicity around Zuma has spread as sort of bad publicity for South Africa generally, a sort of sense of decay there. On the other hand, one could make the case that this is a country that has shown that it's capable of regeneration, that it has strong institutions, because as you say, the Democratic Alliance has managed to take power 
at, in the key cities, the courts remain independent, the press remains strong. How healthy do you think South African democracy is? And how, I mean, I mentioned this might be a crossroads. Do, do you feel that things are kind of in the balance now for the country? I do feel that things are in the balance a little bit. I agree with your assessment that some of the institutions have held up very well. So we've had the public protector, for example, coming out with various reports that have been extremely damning about Mr. Zuma. Mr. Zuma trying to block those, but those going through the courts and eventually being released. So some things are holding up quite well. And the elections in which the ANC didn't fix the elections as might have happened might happen in other African countries, but had to face the fact that it lost four big cities. But you've got other institutions that are certainly under attack. The judicial system, the public prosecutor, there are even signs that there have been attacks on the finance ministry and on the, the tax authorities. And those have fought back. But you do have this kind of push and pull and that, I think, by definition, almost shows that this is not yet a finished story. This is a story that we're watching unfold. So it could go either way, I think, mm. yes. And Joseph, I mean, of course, one of the big problems traditionally with any leader that's accused of corruption in the way that President Zuma is, is that they are very scared of losing power because they then might be open to prosecution. How much is that a factor in President Zuma's calculations, do you think? And might it yet mean that... This transition is rather less smooth than people hope. Yeah, I mean, he has no fewer than 783 separate counts of charges relating to corruption and kind of similar matters in front of him. I mean, they've yet to be kind of fully reactivated in the courts. That may happen at some point this year, you know, making uh, the transition even kind of more difficult. But that illustrates the scale of the kind of post-power situation in which Mr. Zuma may find himself. And that's, that's again, why lots of people think, yes, this is why Eko Zana, Domini Zuma, is his candidate in all but name, because of the family connection, because of the connection to the patronage network. I've already mentioned she will give him as much legal protection as possible. However, um, this goes back to David's point, you know, it's as much protection as possible it cannot be kind of guaranteed. It, as David said, this is a contested system where the, the judiciary pushes back. It may be the case that Mr. Zuma and his allies have captured the prosecutors and uh, the police to some extent, but there are other parts of South African society which kind of do push back. You know, kind of the one phrase that I remember from an analyst is, yeah, this is a, a violent democracy. I mean, it's it is a democracy, but it's contested all the way. So, you know, so Mr. Zuma looking at this, and you've got to remember, he has a long history as, a, as an apartheid activist, as a political survivor. You know, he was in jail. He was on Robben Island. He's been through some quite, you know, persevere personal and physical threat before. So, you know, if I was a betting man, yeah, he would be doing everything, expending as much political capital as possible to kind of ensure that pathway to perhaps not quite a sort of tranquil retirement, but one in which he's arranged succession as much as possible to give him as near as uh, that scenario. Mm. And David, I mean, we talked mainly about the dynamic within the ANC, and I think people in South Africa seem to think they'll probably cling on. 
But you've also spent a lot of time with the opposition, the far left, as they're sometimes thought of, the Julius Malema party, and also the Democratic Alliance. I mean, do you think in the end, South Africa's political future will be with those other parties rather than with the ANC? I think it's possible that, I think not in the next election, but in the election after that, that the ANC, unless it's changed, could face that kind of crisis. Yes, that it could be pushed out of power. As I said, it'll either um, arrange power such that it can never be pushed out or the forces outside it may become strong enough. You know, the EFF, the Economic Freedom Fighters, are a chunk of the ANC that have broken away to the left and they're really causing a lot of trouble, um, not only in terms of fistfights in Parliament, but in terms of almost capturing what people think is the real heart of the ANC, the ANC that was going to make black people's lives better. And then you've got to the right, a more conservative, what had been parts of the old nationalist party, but also now sort of black professionals headed by a South African uh, black politician, Musi Maimane, trying to reposition that party as a party of kind of technocratic governance, a party that can simply get the economy going, pursue more normal capitalist policies to produce the growth that could then potentially be shared around. And that's the great problem that the ANC in the last few years anyway has not been able to produce any growth at all in the economy. There is nothing to share around that only leaves redistribution. So let's end with that point about the economy, because as David implies, it's absolutely crucial to everything else. Joseph, I mean, do you feel covering this, that there is more economic growth to come if the if the South African government could just improve its policies, or is it more difficult than that? It's pretty tough, considering where do quite a few South African exports come from? Mining and agriculture. And that mining at this point is in a very bad place, even if commodity prices come back, because there's just been this complete lack of investment, a lack of certainty over regulation and, and political involvement. The ANC kind of seeking to kind of transform this kind of very white owned, uh, traditionally kind of sector. So you kind of have to knock out these two very traditional drivers of South African kind of growth and to the big export earners. And you have to look to, okay, where else can kind of growth come from? Is it kind of manufacturing? Well, that would be around the urban centres, such as Johannesburg, Port Elizabeth, and Cape Town, for that matter, which are now controlled by the opposition. So how is the ANC going to kind of work with opposition parties kind of right now to kind of craft an economic reform agenda? going to have to learn political pluralism and how to kind of get along with people from being what had been a one-party state in all that name very, very quickly. Uh, so in terms of unlocking that potential growth before 2019 or you know, even in the years after it, it's a very tall order. So as David said, you know, it, it really comes to the question of reform within the ANC to really kind of move beyond this kind of system of patronage, which does basically assume there isn't kind of much growth. You just kind of move around from elite to elite to kind of distribute what resources are there to their supporters. Or you really kind of cross the Rubicon, look at what the DEA are trying to position themselves as, which is effectively, you know, meeting the ANC's kind of goals of empowerment, of transformation for black South Africans, but they do it better. They don't scare away businessmen or international investment. The ANC, that is, again, 
going to be kind of breaking a very old habit, which is to really kind of distrust the DA and, uh, and other kind of sources of power within South Africa. And David, just to finish, I mean, your, your job is Africa editor, so you obviously see South Africa, but in within the broader African context. Does that make you feel more or less optimistic about the chances of this country with its own very peculiar and troubled history, but also with a developed first world sector, as they like to say? Well, in a sense, that's the problem. And I don't think one can overstate the bind that South Africa is in. It's growing at 1% a year. That's below the population rate. So in per capita terms, it's actually shrinking. It's growing slower than Japan. And yet expectations, understandably, are sky high. The expectations of black South Africans are that you will raise our living standards to the living standards of white South Africans. And why not? That's what they've seen for 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years. And yet we just don't know how to do that without a completely radical overhaul of the economy without a plan, without an industrial policy, without kind of Asian style development, that's really impossible. So I do see this kind of existential bind really because either they have to unleash growth and, you know, I used to be the Asia editor, what you need is 10% growth for 10, 20, 30 years. That transforms the society, not 1% growth, 3% in a good year. That does nothing. And to get from where they are now to where they need to be is a very long and difficult road. And I am yet to be convinced that it's a road that can be travelled. OK, thank you very much indeed to David Pilling here in the studio and to Joseph Cottrell in Johannesburg. That's it for this week. Until next week, goodbye.